Welcome again. Thank you for being here for worship. Just a quick reminder here before we begin this morning that we have our quarterly member meeting tonight. And uh, this is, if you've never been to one, this is not just for members. It's just a chance for us to discuss what's going on in the church, give some updates, some announcements, just have conversation with you, the congregation, about where the Lord is leading us as a church and some maybe new initiatives, some updates on various areas of ministry. It's a great chance to be together. There's a meal at 5.30. The meeting starts at 6.30 right here in this room, so I invite you to come back and be here tonight for that. As I was getting ready for the sermon this week, I was sort of noticing that as we're <clears throat> moving through the Beatitudes, uh, it's kind of unrelentless in the way that we're being shaped and kind of conformed into this way of living. So Jesus is giving us, as we've established before, the way that we ought to conduct ourselves in the kingdom of God. And I'll get to that more in a second. But it seems like as we move forward, the implications of what we're being told to do are becoming more and more pressing, more personal. The Beatitudes ask questions of us that demand a real, genuine, honest answer, right? When, when we're confronted with something that says you ought to live this way or you ought to do this, we are responsible then to say, okay, what does that mean? How do I do this? And that's why I say they're asking questions that demand a kind of honesty in our response. There's no good trying to hide our true thoughts and intentions. There's no good trying to kind of get out from under the weight the right kind of weight that is being laid on us as Jesus talks about how we are to live. But this is why I want to continually remind us, not just as we go through the Beatitudes, but as we work through any text of the Scriptures, that the way of living Jesus is laying out for us is not naturally occurring. Right? All of these things in the Beatitudes being poor of spirit, being merciful, pursuing righteousness. None of those things are character traits that we are just born with, that we're naturally kind of bent towards. They are things that we are to pursue. We saw that last week, that we hunger and thirst after righteousness. That is the way of living that God has commended for us. But I just want us to understand that there's a couple implications of this not being natural. So for one thing, when we understand that nobody really has a leg up on anyone else when it comes to this, it should be an encouragement for us because we realize that this kind of living, the kind of arriving at this, is not something that happens instantaneously, but it is gradual. I think we all understand this, at least I hope we do, that sanctification, which is the ongoing process, the lifelong process of becoming like Jesus Christ, is not immediate. It's really painfully slow at times, right? As we see what is required of us, as we see the way that God desires for us to live, and yet so often our experience doesn't match up to that. And that can be really frustrating, and that could even cause somebody to say, well, then what's the point? I can't be meek like that person. I, I'm not humble like that person. Well, that's not the point. This should not be a kind of comparison where we read this and say, well, I'm just, I guess, not naturally bent that way. Well, none of us are. So I hope that's an encouragement as we realize that I'm not standing up here, you know, telling you, hey, you better live like this. Then you go out, you don't live like that. And you're like, well, what's the point? 
The point is that this is the trajectory. This is the process of becoming more like Jesus. None of us have arrived. (laughs) None of us have sat in the seat of accomplishment and said, well, I can't wait for the rest of you to get on board. That's not it. I just want to encourage us as we look at these Beatitudes, don't be discouraged if your life does not immediately look like this. It's not going to. But we are commanded to take steps to make changes, to hunger and thirst after righteousness so that gradually God changes us to be more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ. And certainly there are times and seasons where growth is very visible and there's times when growth is not that evident in our lives. So be encouraged, Christian. If this is the way that we are to live, understand that God has given us His Spirit which, which is like the, the power source for obedience, the thing that motivates and animates our obedience to the Word of God, you are not on the hook alone to live this way. But God has given us everything we need by giving us the power of His Holy Spirit to live like this. So I just thought this week, I don't want you to sit there and say, well, I can't do this. I can't live like this. I might as well just give up. Don't give up. Keep pressing into this. Keep working towards understanding what God has for us. And in the power of His Spirit, we can do that. I think this is going to be really important as we come to the next section of the Beatitudes, verses 7 through 10 specifically, because if we're not careful, we can take the instruction here and we can sort of turn it into a vending machine. This is an analogy I've used before, but we should not see this As you know, Jesus said, well, blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. So we shouldn't understand that in terms of, okay, if I I put my money in the vending machine, I put my obedience in there, then it is automatic and guaranteed that I'm going to receive back whatever I think I am owed. It's not transactional. You know what a transaction is? You give something, you get something in return. That's just the way it is. That is not exactly what's going on here. This is not transactional. This is not working your way in. But it is reciprocal. You guys know what that word means? I'm going to explain that in a minute. So it's not a transaction, but it is a way of living that Jesus commends to us that gives us principles, and I'm excited to get into that. So let's read the Bible together. Would you open to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. We'll have special emphasis on verse 7 this morning, but we'll start at the beginning of the chapter and we'll read as we get into it this morning. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray together. Father, this is one of those portions of scripture that we come to and it's very clear that we don't have what it takes on our own to do this. None of us are naturally this way. None of us are just a little bit more inclined to this than others. It 
it requires a work of your spirit for us to live this way. And so we ask, Lord, that you would grant us that gift, that you would enable our obedience to your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be eager to do what your word says, Lord, that we would hunger and thirst after righteousness and that these things would be markers of the way that we live. Not so that we earn our standing with you. We, we don't give our life and say, well, look at how great we are so that you accept us and receive us. Rather, we just humbly follow in obedience because of the great love that you have shown to us. And what a, what a blessing to sing of that this morning. The confidence that we can have in the love of Christ is such a gift and such a blessing. So Father, even as we work through this passage this morning, don't let us forget all of the other things we know about your faithfulness, your steadfastness, your love and your kindness, all of the things that are part of who you are, God. Give us confidence that you are able and willing to do this work in us. So God, help us now in our study. Help us to honor you. Help us to handle your word rightly, and we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we saw verse 6, and the pursuit of godly living, the pursuit of holy living, which Jesus called righteousness, and he now tells us that those who live this way, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, will be marked by mercy. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Now the first thing we need to concern ourselves with is defining what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the merciful. What's he talking about? What does that mean? Well, as we've done with most of the other words, I want to use the scriptures to help us understand. So we're going to look at some different texts this morning to make sure that we're using the term merciful in the way that the Bible uses it. And so... I want us to understand a few things. Mercy is an attribute of God. It's part of who He is. So for our exhortation times, for the next several weeks, we're going through the attributes of God. These are the character traits, the things that make up who He is. Mercy is one of those attributes. It's something we attribute to God. Now, more than that, it's one of the attributes that we call communicable meaning it's able to be communicated to his creation. There are parts of God that we do not share, right? God is eternal. He never had a beginning. You and I all had a beginning. We don't share that part of his attributes. God is all-powerful. There is no limit to what he can do. You and I are very limited, right? We don't share that kind of attribute with God. But when it comes to mercy and we say God is merciful, that is something that we are not only able to, but called to imitate. And so we file this under the category of communicable attributes, that is, those that are shared with God's creation. So often in Scripture, when the Bible refers to the mercy of God, it is coupled or paired with His grace. Mercy and grace are very commonly used together to try to communicate very similar things. It's seen side by side in almost all of the scriptures when it talks about this. Very common. Let me give you a few examples. In Exodus 34, God has called Moses to be the one to go to Egypt 
declare God's plan to his people and lead them out of slavery. And Moses is having this conversation with God and he says, what if I go down there and no one believes me? What if I go and they say, well, by whose authority are you talking? What should I say to them? Moses said, who should I tell them sent me? In other words, by whose authority am I here? And God in Exodus 34 describes himself. He gives a self-description of who he is and says to Moses, you go tell the people, this is who sent you. And this is what we read in this description of God as he gives it for himself. Exodus 34 and verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Who sent you to Egypt? The Lord, the God who is merciful and gracious. And from there on out, this pairing of words happens over and over again in the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. 2 Chronicles 30, verse 9. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful. He will not turn his face away from you. Nehemiah 9, 17. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Over and over and over again in the scriptures, we see mercy and grace accompanying one another when it's describing God's activity. And of course, there's times when it's not together, but the majority of times, it is mercy and grace. God is merciful and he is gracious. And I think this is significant because it's going to help us understand what exactly Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, 7. What does it mean to be merciful? Well, let's take our cues from the scriptures. So I want to give a definition of mercy and grace, just very briefly, and then we'll apply it to our text. But you know I've been reading a lot of Martin Lloyd-Jones as I've been working through the Sermon on the Mount. I think you should also read Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's very clear. He's very helpful. He's got a great definition of this. I can't improve upon it, so I'm going to read it for you. So here's what he's saying is meant by God's mercy and grace commonly being paired together and what each of those things means. He says this, grace is especially associated with men in their sins. Mercy is especially associated with men in their misery. So remember, this is 30s, 40s, 50s. The language is a little bit different. He goes on, while grace looks down upon sin as a whole, mercy looks especially upon the miserable consequences of sin. So that mercy really means a sense of pity or compassion and a desire to relieve the suffering caused by sin. You see what he's saying there? So grace, God deals with sin by his grace, the sacrifice of Jesus. His mercy is kind of specifically focused on the effect of sin. The condition, the estate, the situations we find ourselves in because of sin. So if grace is the way that God deals with sin, we can say that sin 
necessitates grace. Do you know what I mean when I say that? If it weren't for sin, there would be no need for grace. Grace is the extension of God's love, his forgiveness, his redemption in Jesus Christ. Then mercy is the way, according to Martin Lloyd-Jones, that God deals with the effect of sin, what he calls the miserable condition that we find ourselves in because of sin. And I think in this way, and we see this in Scripture as well, mercy in this sense is somewhat synonymous with compassion. Mercy is somewhat synonymous with compassion. God sees us in our, <coughs> excuse me, our helpless estate, and because he is merciful, he has a desire not only to deal with the, the overarching, the primary problem, which is sin, but he also goes beyond that to help us, to show compassion to us in the messed up and broken situations that we find ourselves in. This is what it is for God to be merciful. Now, I'm not making this up, and I want to read you a couple texts that show us in the Bible. This is exactly the way that God deals with us. Psalm 103 and verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The book of James in the New Testament, chapter 5. James says, You have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Compassionate and merciful. James doesn't pair those words together because they're contrasting. He pairs them together because they are synonymous. They are similar. Compassion, mercy. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. So I think the primary way we should think about the mercy of God is that he sees us in our sinful condition, in the misery that we have caused because of our sin, and he extends mercy, compassion. The King James uses the word pity. I think it's good. I've used the term helpless estate here a couple of times. Estate is just the old word for condition situation, circumstance. And I get this from one of the songs that we sing often here at Grace. It is well with my soul. And the second verse says this. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control. Let it rule, let it be dominant. That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul that is mercy that he looks upon us helpless vile sinful human beings in a mess because of the sin we have committed and rather than just writing that off or saying well I dealt with the big problem now you figure that out God looks upon us we just sang it, tis mercy all immense and free that thou, O oh God, would die for me. That is the mercy of God and you and I ought to be eternally grateful for that. God could have just said, okay, I'll, I'll wipe the slate clean, sin forgiven, justified, now be miserable the rest of your life. He doesn't do it. It is his mercy 
his compassion towards the mess that we get ourselves in where he says, I'll meet you there. And he does it through Christ. We can just say amen and be done right now. It is so good. It is such an encouragement to my heart. Now, another aspect of mercy. So, so God sees and does something in the mercy that compels him, in a sense, to action, to compassion. Another aspect of mercy we see in the Bible is that of God withholding something that we rightfully deserve. This is maybe a more common articulation that you've heard of mercy. So if grace is giving something... If the grace of God is what we receive from him that we did not deserve, mercy is God withholding something that we did deserve, usually in terms of judgment, punishment. To see the kind of two different aspects in the way that the Bible uses this. So I'll give you an example. In Psalm 51, David is crying out to God because he has sinned with Bathsheba. And in his repentant heart, in his desire to be made right with God, this is what we read, Psalm 51, David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. What exactly is he saying? When he calls to God for mercy, what is he at? what's the request being made here in Psalm 51. He is asking that God withhold the punishment that he rightfully deserves because of his sin. Have mercy on me. This is the way we often hear it. You know, you watch maybe an old show with kings and, and knights and such, and, and people come up and they're guilty and they say, Have mercy on me. What are they asking? They're saying, Withhold that judgment. Have mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. And that is what the mercy of God does. He withholds at times the judgment, the punishment that we deserve. And now that's only part of the story, right? Because we know that in God's justice, he has to deal with the sin. So what does he do? He lays your sin on Jesus. In his mercy, he says, I withhold that. Christ will bear that. huge. This is so, so important. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is God withholding at times what we do deserve because of our sin. So with those things in mind, let's go back to Matthew 5 and verse 7. This entire time we've been looking at the biblical examples of what it means for God to be merciful and we've done this so that we can now have hopefully a, a better understanding of what Jesus is calling us to when he tells us to be merciful. But here someone can say, well, that's all well and good for God. He's perfect. Of course he can be merciful. But can we actually do this? Can we be merciful? And I would say, well, not only can we be merciful, but we are commanded to be merciful in the Bible. If we go forward just a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount and we go to Luke's record. So Luke also records what Matthew records here. And in Luke chapter 6 and verse 36, this is what we read. And this comes in the form of a command. It's do this kind of language. Luke 6, 36. Be merciful, Jesus says, 
even as your Father in heaven is merciful. Do it. <laughs> be merciful. This is what we're commanded to be as Christians. This is not just something we look at and say, well, yeah, of course God is merciful. He's perfect. Well, he also calls us to be merciful as he is, just like he calls us to be holy as he is. This is a way that we imitate the Father. So it's clear that our conduct in the area of mercy ought to imitate what our Heavenly Father does. And this is why we spent the last few minutes looking at these biblical examples. We want to get a good handle on what it means for God to be merciful before we start saying, well, here's what we ought to be. Because if we don't understand God, we're going to mess it up on this side. So that's why I took the whole first few minutes to do that. So what about a definition? Can we, can we summarize all of these examples in Scripture down into a single sentence? I tried, and we'll see what happens. Here's my definition of what it means to be merciful. To be merciful is to feel appropriate compassion for our fellow man as we live in a fallen world. To be merciful means to feel appropriate compassion for our fellow man as we live in a fallen world. Let me explain a few parts of that for us. When I say that we should show appropriate compassion, what I mean is that we must allow the scriptures to guide us and to be our standard for determining when to show compassion and patience and how to do that. Okay, so appropriate, I mean scripture-guided, scripture-informed. We've got to act like the Bible tells us to do. To be merciful does not mean in any way that we condone, support, or endorse the sins that the Bible clearly condemns simply because we want to be compassionate. We want to be nice. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. That's not what it means. The merciful person is not one who just smiles at transgression and makes friends with law-breaking because, well, I want to be merciful, I want to be compassionate. Appropriate in content and appropriate in expression. And this is why it's so important that we start by seeing how is God merciful? What does God do? How does God demonstrate mercy? Because that is what should control how we demonstrate mercy. If we're to imitate Him then we can see clearly that God is not one who overlooks sin or just puts up with it because he's merciful, and neither should we. That's not what it means for us to be merciful. The expression of our mercy must be controlled by and in alignment with the word of God. That is what determines our expressions of mercy. But it's not going to look exactly like God's is, is it? You and I can't forgive anyone's sin. So when I'm talking about being merciful, I am not saying that we sort of step into God's role and say, okay, now I'm going to be merciful and I'm going to tell someone, you know what, it's not a problem. I will personally take care of your sin. None of us can do that. That is God's work alone done through Jesus Christ. So I'm not saying that we imitate one-to-one -one exactly the same as God in His mercy. But we can extend mercy to sinners. 
And we should. This is what the Bible calls us to. We can demonstrate the same kind of patience and pity and compassion that our Lord has shown to us in our sinful condition. And we can share with those around us the hope of the gospel. See, mercy is not an end in itself. Mercy is redemptive. It is meant to bring people back to a place where they understand their sinfulness, the great compassion that God has shown them, and lead them to a place of confessing their sin, repenting of it, and turning to Christ in faith. That is the point of you and I extending mercy, compassion, pity, kindness, whatever you want to call it. Because ultimately we hope and we pray and we work towards the goal that people would see the kind of mercy in us that God has extended and they would turn from sin and come to him. That's the goal. The goal is not just to be merciful for mercy's sake. It's to be merciful because in that way people can see Christ in us. It's a means. It's not just an end. Okay, that was the easy part defining what it is, or perhaps not. But now we have the harder part of figuring out what Jesus means in the second half of the verse. Okay, so go back to Matthew 5, 7. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What does that mean? You might say, well, it's simple, they'll receive mercy. (laughs) Well, that's not how everyone looks at it. I mean, some people take this verse... And they do the transactional thing that I was talking about before. They say, okay, cool. If I am merciful, then God is obligated to show mercy to me. I put my obedience in. I put my mercy in the vending machine. And automatically, no qualification, God gives me the mercy back that I require. Do you think that's what is being taught here in the context of the book of Matthew? I don't. I think that's a really dangerous way to interpret this. It's not transactional, at least not in the salvific sense, that is referring to salvation. We cannot compel God to be merciful to us by our own acts of mercy. I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching here. There's a reason that we start with the first part of the verse before we try to figure out the second part of the verse, because in this case, what do we see in the first half? Well, we saw what it meant for God to be merciful. So now that constrains, that dictates what it means for us to be merciful. We saw that we are called to imitate the kind of understanding of the sinful condition that is a result of sin, right? And that understanding of that sinful condition moves us to compassion, to mercy, as directed by the Scriptures. And we saw that it was similar to, yet distinct, from the grace of God. So we cannot forget what it is when we come to now applying it to our lives. So I said we shouldn't interpret the Beatitudes as transactional, but that we should see them as reciprocal. You guys know what the word reciprocal means? Anybody have a reciprocating saw? It's called a sawzall, right? So here's what happens. Here's what reciprocating means. Not even theologically, just in general. The sawzall has a straight blade. It goes out, it comes back. It goes out, it comes back. It goes out really fast and it cuts through stuff. Just like a handsaw. That's a reciprocal motion. So something goes out, the same thing comes back. Something goes out, same thing comes back. Are you with me so far? Okay. So I think when we look at the Beatitudes, what we're seeing is not transactional. It's not guaranteed one-to-one, but it's what goes out in principle comes back. 
Now, Jesus is going to teach this really clearly throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and we might call this the golden rule. You ever heard that phrase? That's not made up. That wasn't Aesop's fables or old Mother Hubbard. This is Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. That's the golden rule as Jesus teaches it. If you want others to forgive you, you must demonstrate forgiveness. If you want others to be kind to you, you must demonstrate kindness. I mean, we teach our kids this, right? It's kind of a basic principle. If you want to receive mercy, then you need to be a merciful kind of person. This is the kind of Christian living that Jesus is commending to us in Matthew's gospel. We're going to see this principle applied to prayer, applied to forgiveness, applied to the pursuit of the kingdom and various other areas in Matthew's gospel. So I think it is right that we interpret Matthew 5, 7 in the same way. If our lives are marked by mercy, if we are quick to demonstrate the kind of mercy that God has demonstrated to us, it stands that we will also receive mercy in return. Not as a promise, but as a principle. There's a difference there. Maybe you've heard kind of, when you read the scriptures, there's promises, there's principles, there's all this kind of stuff. You know that there are things in the Bible that are promises. These are sure, unchangeable promises and guarantees from God that cannot be altered. And the Bible contains principles, general ways of living that produce generally the kind of outcome that we desire. You, you with me so far? So I'm saying that Matthew 5, 7 should be called the principle of mercy. That generally speaking, when our lives are marked by this kind of behavior, by this kind of demonstration of the kindness and the compassion that we have received from God, it will generally come back to us in that way. Not guaranteed, but in principle. I mean, as we go forward in the Beatitudes, verses 10 to 12 are going to describe to us what happens when we don't receive mercy back, right? We're going to talk about persecution, mistreatment, all on account of living the way that Jesus calls us to live. So we cannot say that it's just one-to-one -one guaranteed. But I'm saying this is a principle, that when we live this way, it is right that we expect to be treated in the same way. And don't forget that Jesus says, blessed are those who live this way. This is not something he calls us to so that we are miserable and sad and discouraged all the time. Maybe you won't receive mercy in the way you thought you would. Maybe for you this looks more like verse 11 than verse 5. But either way, when we are merciful, God will bless that. Maybe not in the ways we think, but he is faithful, and he will do it. Now, I want to spend the last few minutes we have talking about how we can put this into practice. So Jesus says, blessed are those who live this way, so what does that mean? We've identified what it is and how God exhibits mercy and extends that to his people. So I want to give us just a couple of hypothetical situations, maybe not so hypothetical for some of us, and then close by sharing an example uh, from someone that I think most of you will know. So I'm operating on the understanding here that showing mercy for us as we imitate God 
looks a lot like compassion, right? Understanding a need, seeing a deficit, however you want to put that, and being motivated to show the love of Christ in that situation. Now, we already established that this compassionate aspect of mercy is defined by the Scriptures. It's a kind of understanding of a person's situation as a result of sin that moves us to action. So let's give a couple of situations. Maybe you have a friend who is recently divorced, whether infidelity or selfishness or whatever the reason your friend finds themselves in a situation where they're not married anymore. And there still is the responsibility of children, of parenting, of work, of keeping things up. What does mercy require for us in that situation? Should we say, well, this is your fault. You sinned. You're not supposed to get divorced. I even told you this was a bad idea. I even told you that this not, work it out, do, do whatever. But it happened anyways. Should you go to that friend and say, I'm done. You're on your own. You deal with this mess. Is that what God does for us? Does God look upon the mess we have created in our life and say, well, good luck? No. No, God sees our situation. He doesn't excuse the sin, and neither should we. There is room here to call for repentance, to encourage faith and trust in Jesus, but I think it is totally appropriate to be there, to support and encourage whatever that looks like in your context. And like I said, remember, we've already said we have parameters on this. We're not condoning. It's not acceptance. It's not, oh, great, good for you. I'm glad you finally got rid of that guy. That's, that's not it at all. But mercy moves us to be there to get into it, to, to show the love of Christ in those situations and to draw back and to point out that there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is restoration in Christ. And I think it's appropriate that we do that. Or maybe someone that you know recently lost a child or a spouse or a parent. What does mercy constrain us to do in those situations? I think some of us get a little bit nervous that we're going to say the wrong thing, we're going to do the wrong thing, it's awkward, we don't know what to do with it, but mercy tells us that we can look at that situation wrecked by sin, death comes by sin, and we can understand that God does not shy away from those situations, but we ought to get in there with our friends, offer words of hope and comfort and compassion in those times of need. Recognize and mourn the effect of sin in the world that has produced death, but be there with them. I think that's what mercy calls us to do. To show the kind of love and compassion that God has shown to us in the really, really hard situations of our life. And they're coming if they're not here already. Well, I want to close now just with sharing an example of someone that I think has lived this out really well uh, as a missionary that we support here, Jesse Nelson. I think most of you probably know Jesse or at least know about him. He and his wife Heather are in Montenegro, which is in the Balkans, and they are working at planting churches and sharing the gospel to those people. I've gotten to know Jesse over the last three years. Um, first met him in North Carolina, where they're from, 
And um, he's just, if you've met him, you understand he is all in for the gospel and for sharing it with lost people. The reason I bring him up is because I think that he has lived this out. He has he personified, in a sense, the kind of mercy that I want in my life and that I want for you guys. So Jesse and Heather lived in North Carolina, had a great house. Tiff and I were able to be there a few years ago and had dinner with them, and it was great. He really involved in the church, had a good job at a Christian software development company, but at one point in his past, Jesse had been to Albania and Serbia doing missions work there, which is right around Montenegro, same kind of geographical area, and he has seen what sin has done to that area. He saw the hopelessness, the kind of wandering, there's no direction, there's no spiritual source for the gospel, there's nothing there. And God, through the work of his Holy Spirit, prompted Jesse to have a kind of compassion, a kind of desire to show mercy to those people in Montenegro. So, him and Heather and their three kids, whose names are Mercy, David, and Peter, leave everything in North Carolina, and with the support of their sending church, and our church supports them as well, they left. And they went to a place where they could visibly, tangibly, faithfully show the mercy of God in calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. I texted him last night and just said, I'm getting ready to preach Matthew 5, 7. Thought of you, thankful for you and your ministry. That's the kind of demonstration of mercy that I'm talking about. Not that all of us are going to quit our jobs and move overseas, but there are situations and there are opportunities everywhere around us for us to demonstrate the kind of kindness and compassion that God has demonstrated to us. So that is what I'm calling you to. However that plays out in your life, you and I can be merciful, just as our Heavenly Father is merciful. So will you commit to that? Will you, will you hear the word of Christ saying, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy? And I'm just asking you, keep your eyes open. Look for opportunities to minister where there is need, because it's everywhere. And many of you do the wonderful job of this already. I'm so encouraged as I hear how the church meets needs. That's mercy. And I'm just calling us to do that in greater capacity. So if you're in, if you want to walk in obedience, let's encourage one another to do this. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, so often I don't want to be merciful. You see situations that have been created because of sin and failure and shortcomings and I am far too quick to say, well, you got what you deserved. Oh God, if we were to all get what we deserve, we would be dead. But in your mercy, in your compassion, in your long-suffering, you extend to us not only grace, which, which covers our sin, but you extend mercy, which sees us in our need and extends comfort and hope and peace through the gospel. So God, I pray that we would all become more and more like Christ, that we would become more merciful, 
more compassionate, more willing to go out of what we're comfortable doing to show love to those in need. Thank you that your word gives us a model for this. Thank you that Christ is a perfect model for this. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us strength by your spirit to live like this, that we would be merciful as you are. So please help us with this, God. And I ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen.